Hey everybody, welcome to episode 8 of It's a Trap, the most inconsistent podcast known to mankind, but it's great to be back with you. My name is Cam Brennan, and I am joined by one of my best friends in the whole wide world. His name is Dave Hogue. What's up? Hey, yeah, it's kind of, we've been a little sporadic with these, so I'm excited about getting back into it, and we have a good one for tonight. We do, yeah. What better way to start... uh, a new episode of the show, then just, you know, just go dark. Like, and if I'm looking at the, the list of people that we've, movie characters that we've discussed over the previous seven episodes. Tell me if you know the theme here, Dave. I, I was, I, it's running through my head. <laughs> Verbal from Usual Suspects. Norman Bates from Psycho. Okay, Austin Powers and Dr. Evil, they're kind of an outlier. Atticus Finch, The Joker, Marge Gunderson, and Tyler Durden. Hmm. I would say six out of, well, five out of seven are definitely dark. Yes. Atticus himself is a light in the dark. And then mm-hmm. Austin Powers and Dr. Evil are just silly, silly, silly boys. But um, I think we have sort of a, uh, well, our reputation precedes us with the movie characters that we like to discuss. <laughs> so with that being said, Dave, do you want to tell uh, the listeners? Well, I mean, they already know they've seen the title of the show, but who are we discussing today? Uh, we are discussing Travis Bickle, who is played by Robert De Niro in the movie Taxi Driver. Yes. And Travis is um, one of the original anti-heroes of the mid-70s. Was that a... Before then... Go ahead, sorry. I don't think there, there were a lot of anti-hero heroes. Yeah, was that was that sort of a a theme mid seventies and on this this concept of antihero? Yeah, because it was. Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's gonna you know, exceptions, um, but yeah, during the seventies, you started seeing, um, and and you see it a lot more today, where you're you're rooting for a flawed character. Deadpool comes to mind. Yeah, and. Um, you know, um, it's always been the hero is a good guy. And in the seventies, um, the, one of the ones that's come to my mind is, is Hawkeye Pierce from MASH. You know, he was not the, um, he definitely had a lot of flaws and he wasn't your typical, um, super masculine, super macho hero that you saw in much of the, um, war movies, westerns, um, you know, superheroes, that sort of a thing. And so uh, I think, and I haven't done a lot of research on this, but my recollection is is that a lot of people try to kind of copy off of the Travis Bickle character in terms of a flawed um, hero uh, for the plot of the story. So more relatable uh, people that we probably are, truly do exist out there. Yeah, I don't know how relatable Travis Bickle is to most of us, Dave, but I get what mm. you're saying in the sense that, you know, flawed has issues, clearly, but his issues are, oh, they are deep and they are uh, strong. Yeah. So I had never seen this movie until 24 hours ago. I watched it last mm-hmm. night, so it would be fresh in my mind. 
it, it has always been on my list of movies that I wanted to watch, but for various reasons had, had never gotten around to it. Um, and so I'm glad that I watched it because I, I actually quite enjoyed the movie. Um, I like this era of film mm-hmm. um, because it's shot on film, right? And it, especially this one, a lot of it happens at night because he's a nighttime cab driver. Um, just the, the, the neon lights of the city and the headlights and the brake lights and the smoke and steam coming out of the sewers and the way that Martin Scorsese directed this film. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's Martin Scorsese. There, he's one of the all-time greats. Um, mm-hmm. And so just from a, a cinematography basis, I really, really enjoyed the way this was shot, um, the, the, the angles that were taken, the colors that were used, the, the grittiness and the emotion that was con- communicated through uh, how it was shot, and even how, uh, and we can get to this in, in a little bit more in detail, uh, how Travis and Betsy's characters have that very awkward interaction yeah. every time they talk, and they just kind of let, it just hang the tension Mm -hmm. builds or like when Travis is talking to the secret service agent and it takes him a good 35 seconds to begin the conversation while he's standing awkwardly close to him and looking at him and smiling (laughs) and looking away and then looking at him. It's like, Oh, I'm so uncomfortable. But yes, that's the entire point, right? Like this guy does not play by the rules of society and it's just done very, very well in that way from, from Mm -hmm. all regards. So Really, really glad that I got to watch this um, finally, and um, I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So this, um, this was my perception of New York in the mid to late seventies, and not necessarily from this movie, but just well, a lot of different movies, and you know, just high crime, and it was a very dangerous place, and. Uh, you know, it was, uh, but I think even more so, um, it, it gets, it's, it, it gets overplayed or it gets, you know, sensationalized by the, the movie. Uh, the other thing I, I kind of noticed as I was watching it this time is, you know, you talk about the way things look and the feel to it and, um, being in law enforcement, I've gone to different trainings where they have shown either movie clips or news clips or photos from the 70s. And it's not like that is what it looks like, you know. It, it So um, I guess I, I'm just contributing to what you said in terms of uh, I liked it and I think it's accurate. Um, and I think it um, probably created a... Uh, an image for New York in the seventies of just being this dark, dangerous place uh, to a lot of people who didn't live there. Well, I don't think the people that lived there probably needed too much of a reminder from a movie. No. I think they just needed to maybe, <laughs> you know, look outside their window or drive by that part yeah. of town. Right. So, all right, let's, let me ask you this. What is mm-hmm. your overall impression of the character Travis Pickle? Let's start there. Um, so I, just on our, our, our already conversations that we've had, um, 
I so I still feel sorry for this guy. Um, I think he is a lonely person that's looking for purpose and looking for meaning. And I certainly think that he is a, and this is an excuse, but I think he's a product of his environment, a product of his world. And I think there's a lot of people like him. Now, again, in the story, he, he, know, he, he does some extreme, he, he, he has some extreme actions, but I would venture to guess um, that a lot of people could relate to him. Uh, particularly people who 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 maybe didn't live in New York or who had gone to New York uh, to live a different life to kind of find themselves in a similar situation. So, um, yeah, I, I guess there's an element of I did have some compassion for this character, for this person, and I felt bad for him in his loneliness. Uh, at the same time, I think there are certain things that are cues in the movie that he has created this for himself. Mm. You know, he's clearly chosen to move away from his family. He chooses not to really engage with his family. Chooses uh, to outright lie to them. Yeah, he lies to them about what he's doing. Um, But I think even in that, there's just sort of that underlying that we all have in terms of, um, you know, you're supposed to be successful, uh, whether that's famous or rich or you've done a great accomplishment or something like that. And it's kind of like I feel like he's living in that tension of I need to make something of myself, uh, but really doesn't know um, what that is or how to do it. And yeah. So one thing I want to add to what you said that is to someone who's from my generation, like I was born, this movie came out in 1976. I was born in 1986. So this movie mm-hmm. was 10 years old and I was born. Um, but every recap of the movie says that he's a Vietnam veteran. They mention that he was in the service in the movie and that he's an ex-Marine, mm-hmm. but they never explicitly say he was a Vietnam vet. Now, he wears this sort of army jacket that says T. Bickle on the back, and maybe the timing of the movie in that jacket was enough to make it obvious for everybody in that era, oh, he's, mm-hmm. he's an ex-Marine that served in Vietnam. But for someone my age or younger, Without reading the recap, I would have never known, oh, he served in Vietnam. Sure. Um, so part of me wonders how much of this character is a statement about that war and what it did to the people that served over there. Right. That then yeah. had to come back home to normal life and reassimilate mm-hmm. and how that affected, especially in this movie, he said he was 26. And the movie was put in 1976, and Vietnam ended in, did it start in 67 or end in 67? Uh, no, it, no, it went on, and it would have ended in the 74, 75. Okay, so maybe it started in, for some reason, 1967 stands out to me, and I'm looking it up right now, so that we, holy cow, no, apparently it was 20 years long. Yeah, it started well before. Okay, yeah, so it ended theoretically April 30th, 1975, according to Wikipedia, which we all know is never wrong. (laughs) And it was, you know, and that was kind of even the issue with Vietnam was it was a slow escalation. It was never really, I don't think war was even ever declared. I think it's even classified for the longest time as a military action and not an actual, we've, you know, Congress never declared war. Well, 
That's great, but that <laughs> well, tell, no, that, tell that to all the people that died while they were over there. Right. Well, and I think that was even some of the tension of, you know, like you're talking about the Vietnam vets and coming home was, you know, people who came home from previous wars, particularly, you know, World War II, they were heroes. And people who came from home from Vietnam were not heroes. And I, and I do even remember that myself, you know, kind of, um, seeing homeless veterans still wearing their fatigues. And um, I, I do remember that having just a, a negative connotation to it. Yeah, so I, I bring that up, one, to show my ignorance about that particular um, part of history, but two, to wonder, okay, how much of this movie was a commentary on what, what the time there did? Because we don't mm-hmm. know what he was like before he went to Vietnam. This is all right. we get is... He shows up in this taxi cab office and says, well, I've been riding around town on trains and buses all night. I figure if I'm going to do it, I might as well get paid to do it. Right. Which I'm like, all right, I can, get, I can get on with that sort of <laughs> reasoning. That makes all the sense in the world. If I'm doing it anyways for free, why shouldn't I do it and get paid? Um, so he's clearly an insomniac. That's just established very early mm-hmm. on in the movie. Cannot sleep. Um, and so he's, he's drinking, he's taking pills, he goes to porn theaters during the day and like, he gets like a candy bar and popcorn and this, and like, he's just <laughs> like, he's going to watch like the next Lord of the Rings three and a half hour movie, but it's just a, it's just a porn theater, which I can't believe well, those exist on a date there. Well, yeah, well, we haven't even gotten to that part yet, but like, <laughs> Oh man, read the room, dude. Um, so I think my overall takeaway from from Travis is that he is so desperate for human connection, but he is completely unaware and of how to get it. And so that causes him to lash out in the ways that he does. But he is so desperate for someone to connect with. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't know how to do it. And I think that part of his character will connect and resonate with a lot of people that are desperate for connection but don't necessarily know how to go about getting that connection in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that translates to you know, 2020 of like all of these people that are trying to, to uh, force connection or fake connection through their social media interactions, their TikTok videos and their Snapchat feeds. And, oh, well, I have 280,000 followers on Instagram. Well, that's great, but that's not real human connection. Mm-hmm. That's people that follow you because you're funny or you're pretty or you have a lot of money or you're really good at something or, you know, like they're following you because of something you do not necessarily because of who you are. And even if they are following you for who you are, that's still not a real connection because you're not actually friends. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a surrogate replacement for real relationship that never will meet the... Um, what's the, it'll never have the impact that a real relationship will. And so that's, that's my takeaway from this movie is here's a guy who is the epitome of lonely and he's so desperate for connection that he winds up almost throwing his life away and he's lucky mm-hmm. that he doesn't die. Right. Right. His, his whole goal was to die because yeah. 
well, if I can do this one last thing, then my life will have some sort of meaning. Mm-hmm. And we can get to, we'll get to the end in, 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 the, in the twist there at the end, but um, there's one quote from the early on in the movie where he's writing in his journal, which is sort of a theme throughout the whole movie. Him, mm-hmm. you know, writing in his journal and then Robert De Niro narrating what he's writing over the, um, uh, the video. And it says, all my, all my life needed was a sense of some place to go. I don't believe one should devote himself to morbid self-attention. I believe that someone should be a person like other people. Yep. And like I, I stopped the movie and I played that back like three or four times to make sure that I got it right. And I was like, <laughs> what a, like, if that doesn't sum up what we need, all my life needed was a sense of someplace to go. I need purpose. Yeah. Give me, especially someone who is a soldier, right? You have orders, you have purpose, you have expectations. There's, it's very rigid, right? And for him to just get thrown back into a place like New York at that time, according to this movie, which was the exact opposite. Stuff mm-hmm. going on 24-7, drugs, prostitution, porn theaters, you know, uh, even get into like the conversation with the presidential candidate in the back of the cab talking about, oh, we shouldn't be talking about like all the underhanded stuff that was going on. It's like for someone who needs purpose, a place like that is going to be, you know, your kryptonite. Mm-hmm. And so I think of that and I was like, man, Yeah. And that's, so that was one of the things that I, like, I felt like I took note of on this was, you know, even though he's a loner, to me, he still has a sense of right and wrong. Um, you know, even though. A skewed version of it, but yes. He, uh, but, you know, there's, there's certain things that you do and don't do. And even in his awkwardness, he still has the ability to go up and introduce himself to women that he doesn't know, you know, to, <laughs> to engage in people, which. You know, I think about the people that you were just describing, and I think there's a lot of folks out there that have completely lost that ability because their interaction with other human beings is, you know, gaming in the wee hours of the morning or, you know, like you said, social media or chat rooms or something like that. And so um, I, uh, the story that I kind of told myself about this guy is I think he was probably brought up in a good home uh, where he was told, you know, he, he was his parents taught him manners, you know, societally, you, you, there was things that you didn't, didn't do and you acted a certain way and that sort of thing. And so, um, it, yeah, so there's this kind of like, now he's away from his family and he's been through the war and he's in New York and he's the, the insomniac. And so, um, he still has like characteristics that I think are absent, um, from a lot of people today in terms of just, uh, social courtesies and social norms and how we interact with people. Uh, and obviously he was, he had some, he was not, you know, completely there with that, but yeah. Um, and, and I guess in that, I just, there's an element of like, maybe relatable was the wrong word I used earlier, but he's believable to me. Like yeah, I can go, better, I can see word. how somebody, I can see how somebody ends up like in that. this, in his situation. Mm-hmm. So, Yep. The other things um, that I wrote down is like he's obsessive. Like when he first sees Betsy, mm-hmm. who's played oh, by yeah. S- Sybil Shepherd, um, 
he like instantaneously just like grasps onto the, not even her, but the idea of her. Yeah. Like he explains when, again, it's one of those, you know, voiceover parts of the movie where it says like, the first time I saw her was in the corner of 63rd and whatever. She was dressed in white like an mm-hmm. angel and no one could touch her. It's like very dramatic, right? And it's like, okay, pal, like you don't even know her name. <laughs> Put your pants back on, calm down, take a cold shower. Yeah. Like, I get it. She's a pretty woman, but, like, relax. Yeah. And, but, like, it's like he sees her, and immediately that's his purpose. Like, he's been looking for a purpose the whole beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, this job, what do I do? How do I sleep? Oh, wow, there's a woman that I'm attracted to. That's my sole purpose, right? And so he winds up sitting outside of the office where she works at, just staring. Because mm-hmm. that's normal. And I remember when he finally works up the guts to walk into the office and ask her out on a date, which, like, talk about a cold call. Just you're going to walk into this lady's place of work, introduce yourself, and say, I want to take you out for coffee and pie or whatever. Like, makes me terrified to date again, Dave. That was my first reaction. I was like, (laughs) I am not ready for this. Uh, It's been way too long, and I am not. I I, That terrifies me. I do not want to have to introduce myself to a woman and be like, hi, I yeah. Cam. Would you like to, <laughs> I don't know, talk socially at some point? <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I, that was the other thing that just kind of, you know, um, this predates a lot of the, uh, the serial killers and a lot of the terrible things that were going on in this country in the late seventies. And so, you know, civil shepherd isn't even weirded out by the fact that this guy is like looking at her, you know, where today that would just be like, I don't think she would have given him the time of day, but the fact that she even is like, you know, engages with him and then goes and has a lunch with him or coffee with him or whatever it was that they did. And, um, you know, it, it, it there was still kind of this like, weird trust that people had of another human being. You know, it wasn't like people were questioning your motives, you know, even as dark and as, as much crime and just corruption that was happening in New York at that time. Uh, I still think there is that kind of, you know, a complete stranger could walk into that office after staring at her and she wasn't completely weirded out by that. Yeah. Well, she doesn't necessarily make, great choices in this movie either because on their second date, Dave, and you mentioned this earlier, he (laughs) asked her, Hey, let's go to a movie. Okay, sure. Why not? You know, she's intrigued by him because he's, he's, she calls him a contradiction on their first date. Mm -hmm. References Chris Christofferson, which is a name I had not heard in ages. Uh, So that (laughs) took me back. Um, But they go to a theater and they walk up and he's buying the tickets at the, you know, the marquee or the, the little outdoor booth. And not until they w- start walking in, she goes, oh, this is a dirty movie theater. It's like, did you not see the triple X's everywhere? And yeah. like the, you know. <laughs> it's all sleazy guys walking yeah. in. And like, you know, nine-tenths naked ladies on the on the movie posters <laughs> covering just enough to make it okay to show. And then she's like, well, I don't know. And then she chooses to go in with them. Yeah. And then however and- long in. Yeah, and into the, the movie, movie actually gets started, and they watch it, and then, and then she's only after that, yeah, does she get offended and leave? And it's like, and 
so that's that's a whole other discussion, right? Like why, if you're opposed to that, would you go in? And and part of it that 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 goes into a whole. Well, I don't want to. There's a whole lot of reasons somebody would go in if it was against their right. Mm-hmm. You know, they like this guy. Maybe maybe it's not as bad as I think it's going to be. Maybe it's whatever. Maybe maybe it won't offend me as much. I don't want to look like. There's a lot of reasons someone would compromise that mm-hmm. and go on the date with the guy into the theater. There's a, there's plenty of reasons that we don't need to get into. But what I'm interested in is is Travis's reaction when she gets when she's had right. enough and goes, okay, this really is as bad as I thought it was. I cannot believe <laughs> I'm in here. I have to get myself out. You know, like she kind of comes to the realization, like I should not be here. This is, and she leaves and he's, he is so confused. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know you wouldn't like, I, I didn't think like, and it's just one of those. He is so inept socially. Mm -hmm. Yep. Like he's so desperate, but he's so inept. Yeah. And because it's normal for him for whatever reason, he just assumes that it's like totally okay to take this, you know, young professional woman who works at a politician's office and, you know, has, has things like do a porn movie on their second date. Not that like saying their third or fourth date would make it okay, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I bring up second date as in like, you probably don't even know her last name. In fact, he mentions later in the movie after she stops returning his calls, he doesn't even know her last name. Right. And it's just like, I remember just thinking like, bro, what are you doing? How do you not know that's not okay? It just, yeah. it baffled me. And then here's the kicker, Dave. Uh, I watched it on Amazon prime, but the only way to watch it for free was to watch it with ads. And so uh, here we are watching this dark, seedy, you know, like sociopathic sort of character in the underbelly of, you know, the biggest city in the country. And then guess what happens? Banana boat sunscreen protects, <laughs> yeah, protects the fun from the sun. And it's like this super bright neon colored, you know, happy-go-lucky people playing on the beach. And I was like, could we pick a worse ad? That's weird. I mean, the juxtaposition, like the whiplash was jarring. And then it's like, mm-hmm. okay, add over right back into this dark, deep, dirty movie about, you know, we haven't even gotten to Jodie Foster's character yet, the 14-year-old no. prostitute, which is just like, oh, man. Well, she was 14 <laughs> in real life. Her, I know. Her, her uh, character was 12. Which is just... <laughs> and I know it happens. I know it happens. But Mm -hmm. it's one of those truths that I think for a lot of us is easy to ignore that there are 12-year-old young ladies in the world that are forced into the sex trade. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is just a very uh, rude awakening to the fact that that happens to... I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to assign numbers, but just probably a much greater number than any of us would ever right. want want to assume. So yeah. So if the movie wasn't dark enough for us yet, there's Iris. Yes. So, um, 
I it's kind of interesting because I think so she appears like 52 minutes into the movie. And mm-hmm. it's a very casual or not a casual, it's an unintentional encounter where she steps into the street and he almost hits her with the taxi cab, but then c- kind of continues to follow her. But no, it's not even that. It's she gets in his cab. Oh, that's the first one. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The first one, she gets in his cab and Harvey Keitel's character, Sport, uh, who's the pimp, pulls her out of the car and throws Robert De Niro a $20 bill, which back mm-hmm. then was a huge, huge tip. I mean, even nowadays, a $20 tip is big, but back then it would have been significant. Um, and he keeps the $20, but he does nothing in that moment, right? He, like, makes eye contact with her. He realizes something's not right. Mm-hmm. But he takes the tip and he goes on with his night. Mm-hmm. But he keeps the tip separate. And then however many days later, that's when he almost hits her with the cab, and she's right. with another prostitute, and he follows her, and she just kind of ignores him and you can you can see the wheels turning in his mind yeah so the so the narrative immediately after that is uh loneliness has followed me my whole life everywhere in bars and cars sidewalks stores everywhere there's no escape i'm god's lonely man then it cuts to him in his kitchen Mm. uh doing one of his journal entries and it's june 8th and and it, it the the narrative almost doesn't stop uh, from that. I'm God's lonely man, and then it says, "My life has taken another turn again. The days move along with regularity, over and over. One day indistinguishable from the next. A long, continuous change, and then suddenly there is change. And so, I I guess that that 52 minutes into the movie is like when I finally like you like it's you spend half the movie with just him kind of being awkward and lonely. And who is this guy? And then boom, there's that encounter with Jodie Foster and then this narrative of, and then immediately after that is when he goes and buys the guns um, from the guy that sells the guns. And he doesn't just get a gun. Um, he gets like, five. like four or five guns. <laughs> and, and then this is the other thing is, is then the guy tries to sell him drugs and he's like mm-hmm. offended by. Yes, that's a great point. You know, and so there's just this interesting of like, Okay, you just bought four or five illegal guns, but then when the guy tries to sell you drugs, you're you're offended. You're like, you know, I don't touch this stuff. I have nothing to do with those kinds, of, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, I thought that was kind of another interesting, um, you know, you see his skewed sense of right and wrong, what's okay, yeah. what's not okay. Yeah, and I, I, I wrote down, like, he went from like this being this wave just tossed about by the ocean to like this hardened vigilante, like mm-hmm. in a second. And to me in the movie, it felt like super abrupt, like, well, where the heck did that come from? But in, in having you explain that to me and, and, and seeing it from an outside perspective, it's like, Oh, that's the whole point mm-hmm. is the whole first part of the movie is you're just getting, you're just getting a bird's eye view of what this guy's life is, which is, purposeless right it's he's a wave tossed about by the he's just wind blowing wherever it will blow doing whatever he will he has no boundaries he has no greater purpose he has no reason to be and then iris happens twice Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden he has that purpose which is all that he's wanted right that quote i read earlier 
all yeah. my life needed was a sense of someplace to go. And then all of a sudden Iris shows up twice and he's like, that's it. That's my, cause Betsy at this point is gone. Mm-hmm. She has stopped returning his calls. So he's pissed about that. So he's, he's even more desperate for a reason. And then that, I think that totally makes the abrupt change into, you know, this wannabe crime fighter, right? Where he's a, a 50 pushups in the morning, 50 pull-ups in the morning, nothing in my body that will, you know, destroy it. Like I have to get organized. Every muscle must be tight. Like mm-hmm. he has this, like this galvanizing moment where he's like, I'm going to completely change my existence and, you know, right these wrongs. Yeah. And, and that's, that was another quote was, um, he talks about, thank God for the rain, which is, uh, washed away the garbage and trash off the sidewalks. And then he talks about, you know, someday there'll, there'll be a rain. Oh, what is it? Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. And so it's like, even as he's, you know, in this just weird cycle of day after day, he's just disgusted by what he sees. And then when he talks to the presidential candidate and the, you know, kind of asks him what's wrong with the city and he talks about the trash and the garbage again. And, you know, so, um, yeah, there's, he, he's, he definitely thinks the world should be different than it is, that it should be better than it is. And he's, I, you know, I think he's truly bothered by what he sees and what he experiences. So before we get towards the end of the movie, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Did you notice um, whenever he's sitting with the four other cabbies at that cafe mm-hmm. and he makes eye contact with the one black guy in the whole mm-hmm. movie, that everyone else in the cafe turns into that guy in different outfits and like he just stares at him? No, I don't think I noticed that. It's very unsettling. So there's so, him. Mm-hmm. There's the two other white cabbies, and then there's the one black guy mm-hmm. in the entire movie that has at least a role. There's, there's right. another point where he's driving down the street, and there's, there's another uh, black man who's screaming, I'm going to kill him, and running down the street, right? Yeah. But the only, the only character in the movie that gets you know, any screen time that isn't a white guy or a white woman is Charlie T., I think was his character's name. Mm-hmm. And so the first time they meet... Uh, wizard who's peter boyle who's the dad on everybody loves raymond which just cracks me up uh or raymond's dad i should say um introduces him he he looks at him and it's just like that awkward he stares at him and then he looks over at another table and all of a sudden it's two other people that are the exact same guy in different outfits and he just stares at him Hmm. and the next time he sees him at the cafe they go outside and the first person he meets on the street is that guy again Hmm. no and I was just like, so was this just like some subtle racism or because <laughs> it's never addressed. And it's like, is he uncomfortable because he's black? Interesting. I mean, like there's a point he stares at him for like a good five or six seconds, which in a yeah, movie that, that feels remember. like an eternity. Yeah. Um, but it's never addressed. And I'm just like, what, what do I do with that? Because like, as, as I'm watching, I'm like, I'm really uncomfortable right now mm-hmm. with how this is being portrayed. Mm-hmm. It's like, and then it just moves on. And it's just white people and white people and white people and white people and white people. And I'm like, we're in New York. There's more than one black man in New York. <laughs> um, and 
I don't bring that up to make any, you know, great point, but it's just like, that's a whole nother aspect of the movie that isn't really ever, or, or even his character that's, that's never, um, brought to light other than those two or three moments in the movie where it's like, okay, there's some serious tension here and it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I, I just brought it up to see if you noticed it as well. Yeah, no, I don't think I did. All right, so he buys the guns from the very, very, very eager salesman. And then pretty soon he finds himself at a bodega on the street buying some, you know, bachelor groceries, you know, bread, mayonnaise, (laughs) anchovies, what have you. And the cash register clerk, the guy who runs the bodega, is being held up. He takes his gun out of his... Why do people always shove their gun in their pants? That just seems like a bad idea, Dave. It is a bad idea. He takes his revolver out of his pants and shoots this kid, like, right in the cheek. And is he white? No, he's he's a black guy. Okay, that's what I was... I was trying to think of, because when you were saying that, I was, like, going, I think he shoots the black guy. (laughs) So there are three. There's Charlie T, the cab driver, the guy who sticks up the bodega and then the guy who's running on the street screaming he's going to kill somebody yeah so all painted in great light yeah exactly and uh yeah so he shoots his kid like right in the cheek and then his first reaction is very calmly what am i going to do i don't have a permit for this mm-hmm. not the fact that he just murdered somebody <laughs> i mean self-defense i guess but he wasn't being threatened the cat cash i mean Legally, at least manslaughter, if not murder. Probably manslaughter, because the other guy had a gun. But not that it matters. He killed somebody, right? Mm-hmm. He just pulled his gun out, shot a dude in the head, and his first response is, well, I don't have a permit for this, so what am I going to do? Yeah. And again, it was one of those hands-in-the-hair moment of like, you are so broken. <laughs> there is, you have, you need so much psychiatric help. Yeah. But it was it's just indicative of how like how could someone who's so desperate for human connection kill another human and feel nothing? Yeah. Like that doesn't jive, you know what I mean? And that's to me where I was like, he really is he really is suffering from severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. Whether it was brought on by the war or just by, you know, uh, isolation or, you know, uh, biological chemistry, like, you know, I don't think it really matters how it was brought on. But, like, man, normal people don't do that. No. No. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say normal people that. Probably not the best way to say that. People that aren't suffering from mental illness or physiological issues, right? Like, right. I I can't even imagine the thought of killing somebody, but if that was my reaction, (laughs) I think my reaction would, again, I don't even want to think about it, but just like, it was just another like tent mark or tent pole in the story of this guy has serious 
problems. And then, and then the bodega owner, right? Not, not to be outdone goes, Oh, it's okay. I've got this. And if I'm not mistaken, starts beating the crap out of the, the deceased guy's body. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> Dude, you, you run a bodega, you sell soda cans and magazines and loaves of bread, and you're just going to beat this life. It was just, it was unsettling mm-hmm. to say the least, but very much in line with the rest of the movie. Yes. And then going forward, once he finally decides, okay, this is it. You don't really know what he decides until you realize where he is, but he's going he's gonna to kill the presidential candidate. Yeah. He's going to walk up. He's, that's what he's, this whole, this what buying the guns has been about. That's what um, getting ripped has been all about. Like, that's what getting the mohawk has been all about is like, which I don't, here's what I don't understand. It's like, Iris was the, I guess Betsy and Iris were both the impetus for this, but it feels weird to me. Betsy shuns him. Iris, you know, is someone he reaches out to and connects with. We haven't even mentioned that. He like pays the pimp to go spend time with Iris and tries to get her out and then takes Mm -hmm. her out to breakfast and it's like really like a father figure to her. Yeah. But then his reaction is, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to send Iris money, write her a letter that says, by the time you get this, I'm probably going to be dead. Right. And then I'm going to go assassinate this presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing what he should have done, which was get the 12 and a half year old out of prostitution. Now that winds up happening in the end, but only after he shows up to shoot the presidential candidate and chickens out and runs away because the Secret Service guy sees him. Mm-hmm. And my, my reaction to that was, I mean, one, it was self-preservation. Like his, his natural human instincts finally came through. The sure. first time, in, not, not the first time. I think the first time his natural instincts come through is when he saw Iris in the cab and he realized something wasn't wrong or something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And he decided eventually to do like that was the first time his his human instincts came into play. But the second time was, oh shoot, there's multiple Secret Service guys here. I'm actually gonna die. I can't do this. And he bails. Mm-hmm. But only then does he decide, okay, well, I have all the stuff. I've trained all the things. I know what I'll do. I'll go kill the pimp and I'll get Iris out. And it's like, how is doing the right thing your second option? Not that like murdering someone really is a good or right thing to do, um, but it was to me watching it like live, you know, in real time. I was like, I don't understand the thought process there, and 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 you know, maybe you saw it differently than I did, but all this. And he writes a letter to his parents about how he works for the government and he makes all this money and he's going with this girl named Betsy and he can't tell them where like this. Uh, uh, visions of grandeur, right? Mm-hmm. Like fits totally in line with his disillusioned view of reality. And then when push comes to shove, he just chickens and runs away. And yeah. I thought that like, that was just very unsatisfying. Yeah. So my, 
as as that was all happening, I got po- kind of pulled from the movie and the the moment of him and the the logic of his and so John Hinckley Jr. Uh, tried yes, to assassinate. I'm glad you brought this up. Reagan and it was basically his obsession with Jodie Foster in this movie uh, that spiraled Jeez. him down to that. So when all that was that particular scene that you're talking about going on, that's where I was sort of transported was um, to remembering being on the playground as a, a 10 year old and some kid running around the play- playground going, the president's been shot, the president's been shot. And then the days of, you know, the news footage of all that and, Um, and so, yeah, um, life imitating art where John Hinckley Jr. tried to assassinate, um, President Reagan to impress Jodie Foster. So yeah, again, the, (laughs) the logic, the, why is this, you know, so. Yeah. And I think to that point, trying to find logic in people can be difficult mm-hmm. let alone let alone people that are how do i say this i mean suffering mentally right yeah you you can i mean emotions throw logic out the window for anybody and clearly he was in a very emotional state with betsy dropping him high and dry with a 12, you know, this 12 and a half year old girl being caught in prostitution and him feeling like he had to do something. He needed a purpose. He, he knew right from wrong and all the scum. And like you said, God's going to send a rain and Oh, maybe that rain is me. Maybe Mm -hmm. I need to be the one to do this. And so after he fails, um, to shoot, uh, Palantine, who is the, the Senator running for president, he, we find him approaching sport. Who's, played by Harvey Keitel, who's the pimp, um, after a really, really, really uncomfortable scene where he's, like, dancing with Jodie Foster and, like, whispering in her ear and telling her all this stuff. And I'm like, she's legit 14, and you're, like, 35. <laughs> this is... It was like... I'm like, who would let their daughter I, I know. play this? Oh, my... I was... Oh, it made my skin crawl. And it's kind of it funny was, how successful she has been. Or not funny, but, you know, so often child stars do not do well, and she probably had one of the most just warped yeah, character that she played. According to IMDb, she has two Oscars. Yeah. One one for um the accused and another for her role in obviously uh Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. When she went to Yale. Yeah. She's not she's very smart. Very edu- very educated woman. Um like and she she graduated Magna Cum Laude from Yale. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Like she's she is a, a, a at least academically very sharp, um, yeah. And obviously she's been in a bajillion movies, stuff like that. Um, but what what surprised me is she's from L.A. But even in this movie, as a fourteen year old, she kind of has a southern drawl. Mm. And she has that southern voice in Hannibal or in uh, Silence of Lambs, Mr. Lecter. I'm like, why? Why is that your go-to? You're from L.A. Like, <laughs> where does that come from? And maybe she grew up in the South and was just born. I haven't read her full bio, um, uh, but even in this movie, there's a few times where that comes through. Mm-hmm. 
I'm like, okay. So I, again, I don't know all things Jodie Foster. She could very much have been born in LA and grown up in, you know, Alabama. And that would make all the sense in the world. But, um, yeah. So, so, um, Travis Pickle shows up and he walks up and has this super awkward conversation with Harvey Keitel or a sport, I should say. And it's like, dude, just shoot him already. Like, we know what you're, what you're going to do. And obviously this is the end of the movie because you've already, you know, swung and miss on, on the senator. Mm-hmm. But they have this really awkward, like, macho. Oh, get out of here. No, you, know, you don't know who I am. Oh, no. Yo, I'll get out of, I don't want any trouble, but if you don't get out. And then, like, all of a sudden, finally, he, like, shoots him in the stomach. But it's like a 35-second just, like, kind of like pissing contest mm-hmm. between tough guys until one of them actually has a gun. <laughs> yeah. And so he shoots sport, and then he goes into the brothel which is just like an apartment building, you know, across the street, shoots the manager. And then the manager has one of like the longest, most annoying death scenes ever. It's just like him going (laughs) for like five minutes. Yeah. You ever see reservoir dogs? Yes. Yeah. It's like, um, was it? Oh, what's his name? The one guy who gets shot, it's like Timothy Roth might be his name or something. He gets shot and he just whines for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, ruined the entire, like, I don't even, I don't think Reservoir Dogs is a good movie at all. I think Quentin Tarantino's overrated. <laughs> and I think that's probably the worst movie he's ever made. Um, but that scene just took yeah. what I thought was a not a good movie completely down the drain. And you know what? Don't yell at me if you disagree. We have different opinions. It's okay. Um, but like, yeah, he, they're just in this hallway, and then all of a sudden, Sport comes back, and Daniel gets shot in the neck, and he's like, "Oh, I'm bleeding, but I'm fine." You got shot in the neck, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then he's got a secret gun that pops out, and he's shooting people. And the mafioso guy comes out, and he's shooting him. And then it's just like a lot of rather unbelievable um, combat that goes on, as far as. I mean, Harvey Keitel, Harvey Keitel got shot point blank in the, in the gut by a snub-nosed revolver three or four inches away. Somehow manages to walk down the street up the stairs to shoot this guy again. Like, adrenaline will do a lot of crazy things, but you get shot through intestines, liver, kidney, whatever. It's possible, I guess, and it's a movie, so we have to believe it, but, like, yikes. I so I, I actually had the opposite. I felt like it was a fairly realistic <laughs> um, interaction because it's just it. Well, never... you do know you do know more about gun combat than I do, Dave. So, <laughs> but it just it, it it's never you know you do watch these movies and it's you know a single shot takes somebody out and that's very rarely the case that a s- single shot takes somebody out and there is just it's messy and it's. Um, you know, the, even when the guy's got like the point, uh, you know, he can basically shoot, um, Travis in the head. He, sh- he shoots him in the shoulder or the, you know, or the oh, back yeah, the there. The and arm. it's, yeah, yeah. you know, it just, it, it, they're messy and they're, and even going back to, um, when Travis Bickle goes to buy the gun from the guy, you know, he wants a 44 Magnum mm-hmm. and, the guy says to him, you know, only a jackass would carry that cannon in the streets like that. And then when he's in that close quarter combat with the guy, he basically blows his hand off 
and then like misses with the second shot. And he kind of, I can't remember if he looks at the gun or what he does, but he basically drops the 44 Magnum. And so there is kind of this like, um, anti-Hollywood, anti, you know, I'm thinking about Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry and the 44 Magnum and Uh how it gets sensationalized. And there's almost like this commentary on the ridiculousness of (laughs) carrying a 44 Magnum and Harvey, Harvey, or not Harvey, um, Martin Scorsese's in the movie and he's the guy Mm -hmm. that's in the car that's going to kill his wife. And he has a 44 Magnum and he talks about Mm -hmm. blowing her face off or something like that. And so, and other parts of her body yeah. that shall remain unnamed. And so there was like this, like, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I did just have this sense of like, boy, he's got something like a commentary about the 44 Magnum there. Um, because ultimately, you know, he, 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 Bickle goes to the smaller caliber guns that um, are more effective, I guess, in close quarter combat. So... Anyway, well, I stand. I stand corrected. Well, Dave. I don't. I don't. I don't think I would necessarily say corrected. I just that was my perception of it. And then just even when they pan back from the police officer when they show up and they kind of go back over the scene, I did have that sense of just like that's t- like you kind of like you see what happens and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, why did he blow his hand off? Why did he? You know, like there's kind of just it's weird how people get shot, where they get shot, and then even what they're able to do after they get shot, and then. There's other times where people do just die, you know, and sometimes you're like, that's really weird. They shouldn't have, like, why did they die? (laughs) So anyway. Yeah, and so then at the very end, the police show up, Mm -hmm. and Travis Bickle, with his blood-covered hand from getting shot in the arm, points his fingers at his head and fakes the Mm -hmm. suicide well, doesn't he even try to commit suicide, and the gun doesn't go off. Yeah, he. Yeah, that's right. He does. I forgot about that. Yeah, he's he tries to blow his head off and pulls the trigger multiple times, yeah. and he's just out of ammo. Um, so he obviously it was you know it was a one way mission. Yep. Um, and he didn't die, and he lets the cop know that that's what he was trying to do, and then uh, it fades out, and then you come to. And if memory serves, you hear this letter being read. Yes. From Iris's dad to Travis Pickle. But like there's this pan of like you see these newspaper clippings of, you know, famous mafioso shot, uh, cab driver saves young girl. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, these, these news, newspaper clippings. And then you see the, the letter from Iris's dad saying she's back at home in Pittsburgh. She's back in school. Thank you so much. You know, if we had the money to come to New York again, we'd see you if you're ever in Pittsburgh. And I'm like, do you realize who you're inviting into your home? This dude is <laughs> nuts. Um, yeah. And then, so the, the, the movie ends on this really, like, happy moment. You know, this guy who has struggled so much for purpose and meaning and who really set out that night to die. Mm-hmm. That was his goal. Winds up saving this 12 and a half year old girl from the sex trade, killing a couple of bad guys, and then gets praised as a hero. Yep. Like, that's not how I expected this movie to end. <laughs> I did not expect for there to be an ounce of redemption in yeah. this story. No, oh no. And not, even, not even saying that, that that's really redemption. No. Because to your point, it's more of the anti-hero. Like, he's not okay. Yeah. He's not... His view of right and wrong is very skewed. 
Yeah. And, and even in that, I just feel like there's a loneliness about the way the articles are taped to the wall and the mm-hmm. letters taped to the wall. And then his interaction with the fellow uh, taxi drivers is like, like you don't get this, hey, you're a hero, way to go. You know, it's just like another Thursday night and they're having their normal conversations and doing their normal thing. There's not a... Um, well, and then I, I, I'm drawing a blank on his interaction with Betsy, though. That does kind of... So he gets in the car and, you know, oh, oh, Travis, you got a fare. And I almost thought that part was a flashback, except they did a really clever thing. They had a really nice scar on his neck because, like, he, he didn't have the mohawk anymore. Mm-hmm. He had his normal hair back. I was like, oh, this must be a flashback. But they had a, they had a really yeah. a visible scar on his neck. I was like, oh, no, crap. Okay, this is him back normal again. Yeah. I'm like, oh, Travis, you got a fare. You got to go. And so he hops in the cab, and then you just hear... Hello, Travis, <laughs> from the back. And you're like, holy crap, it's Betsy. But the way that they shot her was always through the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. And they like would shoot close. And I'm like, he's totally imagining this. There's no way that's actually her. Like, this is, this is his ending to the redemption story is yeah. he finally gets the girl. Right. And lo and behold, they turn that whole idea on its head. Yeah. Because that, the way they shoot it, I think, is to make you think he's imagining that Betsy's in the back of his Mm -hmm. cab and he's going to take her home and they're going to go upstairs and all's going to be well. And then they get to her place. And the first time you actually see her is when she steps out of the cab. And I'm like, holy crap, she was actually in the cab. (laughs) And he kind of gives her like the, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Have a nice life and drives off. And I was like, huh? Yeah. I did not see that part coming. No. They, I, Scorsese played me, and I'm mad at him for it. <laughs> yeah, he's good. It won't that. be the first or the last. But yeah, he yeah. does that too. But I thought, I thought that was a really powerful end of the movie because instead of getting caught back up in what was so obsessive to him before, mm-hmm. because of what had happened with Iris, he was able to move past it and say, you know what, Mm-mm. I'm good. I'm just a taxi driver. You go on. With it. I'm. I don't. You know, he stuck to his conviction of you're just like everybody else. You're cold, you know, whatever. You're distant, that sort of thing. And he didn't allow himself to get sucked back in when she came back and was like, oh, you're a hero. Well, now I'm interested again. Right. He didn't give into that. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe there's something deeper going on inside of him now that he had that sort of cathartic release of murdering people and saving a girl and somehow surviving (laughs) that like maybe that could be a turning point in his life to help him get better. Yeah. So I was not expecting the hopeful end, um, to, to the movie, but yeah, overall really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. It is dark. The, you know, um, I don't know if, if, if you know what you're getting in, yourself into and you like that kind of movie then yeah it's it's good it's worthwhile yeah i will say i do like the fact that even though he's in the porn theater like three or four times in the movie there's actually never any nudity right which i appreciated because it's like we all know what's going on right you don't need to show us right and i think it being made in 76 like if that movie was made today there'd be naked chicks all over this movie Mm mm-hmm because it would get more people to watch it, right? But sure. I think because of the time that it was made, and that was still kind of taboo to show in mainline cinemas, mm-hmm. like 
you can get across exactly. We all know what's happening. Right. In those films. You don't have to show it. Yep. And they didn't. And they focused on Travis watching it. And not in the way you would think that a dude would watch a porn movie. He's just popping popcorn and eating <laughs> candy bars like he's watching the latest Avengers movie, right? Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is more powerful because you're, you're starting to realize like, okay, there's, there's, there's something not right with this guy. Yeah. Because um, I mentioned to you before we recorded, I really would like to see what this movie would look like if it was recorded today or made today. But part of me wouldn't want to watch it because I know it would just be like, There'd be 20 different nudity scenes in it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the violence would be more extreme. I think you would have Mm -hmm. those unrealistic shootouts. I think, yeah, you know, they're just, you know, even his his interaction with um, Iris, there's there's a purity to it, if I can use that word, as creepy and as weird as it is. There's a purity to it that I don't even think they would capture that today. You know, of his, of just his sense of this is not right. You should be in school. You're a child. You well, know. and I don't even I mean, who you who are you going to find at 14 that can pull that role off like she did. Like when they're sitting there eating breakfast at that diner. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's going toe to toe with him and banter mm-hmm. and back and forth, and it's totally believable. You're 14. I couldn't even <laughs> like shoot a basketball well at 14 and here you are going toe to toe with a 33 year old actor who's been around for 10 years and holding your own in a conversation that feels completely normal and natural. Like we're sitting at the booth next to two normal people. Yeah. I mean, that's why she got nominated for best supporting actress as a 14 year old. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But again, who would let their, uh, never mind. (laughs) (sighs) I think there's people that would, yeah, not me. Wow. Okay, well, thanks for <laughs> uh, for finally getting me to watch that movie, Dave. Oh, um, yeah. I'm glad I did. I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we made it to episode eight. <laughs> yes. Maybe we'll hit double digits sometime in the next couple of years. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you guys and girls so much for listening to episode eight of It's a Trap. Uh, we will be back, I promise. I can't tell you when. I can tell you where on this very feed. I just can't tell you when. Um, but we do have a long list of characters that we want to get to. Um, if you are at all interested in checking out any of our other shows that we do, um, you can go to supermegacorp.net, which is where you can find the show notes for this show, supermegacorp.net, I think slash trap slash eight will get you there. But if you just go to supermegacorp.net, you can find links to the other show that Dave and I do. And um, we'll have links in the show notes um, so you can go and check out the information on this movie. And if there's anything that we missed um, in this discussion or any corrections or if there's any ideas that you had while watching this movie that we totally didn't see, please tell us because we're just two guys, right? We have our perspectives, but there's bound to be things in this movie that we didn't know about or didn't catch. And we would love to hear from you about that. So. Uh, links again in the show notes, which you can find uh, on the website or in your podcast app of choice. Just swipe around. They're going to be there, I promise. And there's ways to get in touch with us there. So thank you so much. And uh, David, appreciate the conversation and the insight, sir. Yeah, it was a good time. We'll be back next time. Bye. Bye.